Hello everyone, welcome to another Dojo Dialogue. I'm excited because I had a chance this afternoon to sit down and have a great conversation with Carolyn Custis James. She is an amazing author and speaker, and I first came across her work in her book, The Gospel of Ruth, Loving God Enough to Break the Rules. And this is, not even exaggerating, the best Bible study on the book of Ruth that I've ever read. Other than some of the commentaries that she also used in writing the book, this would be the number one resource that I would that I have actually pointed people to, particularly women. But men, this is a great book for you as well. So for years, I've appreciated her work, and she recently made a Facebook post that had to do with the gospel and what it says about patriarchy. And so I just commented, hey, this would make for a great discussion if you'd like to enter the dojo and talk about it. And she graciously agreed. So in this discussion, we talked about the book of Ruth, about the concept of patriarchy, about what that means for Christians around the world and here in America, how we look at the role of women and the role of men, how we can analyze cultural movements through a gospel lens rather than through a political or cultural lens. It was a great discussion. I think you're going to find it interesting and challenging. And whether you agree or disagree, this is the dojo. You are always free to share your thoughts in the comments section below. So before we jump into the interview, if you haven't already, we would really appreciate you subscribing. Our goal is to grow this channel. And in 2022, our goal is to reach 5,000 subscribers. So as of today, I think we're at about 3,500, give or take. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and check out the other videos we have here at Disciple Dojo. Okay, that's enough talking from me. Let's step into the dojo. Carolyn, it is so nice to have you here through the wonders of technology, face-to-face, -face, so to speak. Uh, thank you for stepping into the dojo. We really appreciate well it. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very curious about all of the men behind you. So, yes, <laughs> I, am, I am a superhero comic book pop culture nerd. And one of the channel, one of the playlists we have here on the channel is called Superhero Seminary. And it's where I use superhero action figures and pop culture and things from my childhood to teach biblical lessons. And you actually starred in one of our superhero seminary videos where Wonder Woman explained the biblical concept of helpmate and what that Hebrew term actually means. And you were the esteemed scholar that she quoted from in that episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, no pressure, but you, Wonder Woman, that's what you have to embody here. No. Yeah, well, you need some female figures on that little ledge you have. So they, yes, they are. <laughs> Maybe when we're finished, you'll add two. <laughs> you have to see, you have to send me a few. They're just out of screen. I have Wonder Woman and She-Ra. Yeah, I and see her. There's Cara Dune <laughs> from Mandalorian and the Armorer. So, but yes, typically the action figure market skews more male. Uh, yeah. But that is part of the patriarchy, which we're going to be talking about mm. in this discussion. And uh, we're going to let viewers hear from you. I, I want to, one, I want to tell, so this is for those watching, your book, uh, The Gospel of Ruth, came out in 2008, I believe. Does that sound right? I think that's about Close right. enough. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around then. <laughs> uh, at least the Kindle version is because it was one of the oh. first books on Kindle that I ever got when I got a Kindle. And I'm, I'm not, it was part of, there was some promotional, maybe Christianity Today or Zondervan or something, but there were some books that were kind of like, check these out. And so I got your book 
but it was it, it were it was a few years actually before I read it and it sat on my Kindle and I was reading other stuff and then when I started to uh, it was I was gonna have to be teaching through the book of Ruth and I was like let me read this and I'll be honest I at first I thought well this is a book to four women so I don't know if it's gonna be aimed at a 40-something single male Bible teacher um, but let me check it out and I read it and it was one of, it is the best book I've ever read on Ruth like that not a commentary length but book on the book of Ruth um, I've recommended it to numerous women since I've given a copy to my mom uh, to a friend of mine who is going through a lot of trauma and kind of living in that Naomi uh, experience and so it really for those of you watching uh, I want you to make sure I mean we're gonna talk about her other books as well but her book the gospel of Ruth loving God enough to break the rules and that's what uh, initially I want to talk to you about Ruth and then we can transition because I want you to tell viewers about what you just have been working on recently the thing that I found refreshing about your book is that it was intent on making Ruth not a Disney fairy tale and not a uh, a romance story in the traditional sense that it is normally presented as um, and so that's what I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about you there's a quote in your book it's on page 30 I'm gonna read it here and then I'd like for you to unpack it, it says if anything previous characterizations of Boaz as the romantic lead the hero of the book of Ruth who rescues Ruth from singleness in this narrative have actually detracted from his true significance and cheated him of enormous credit he truly deserves. I know what you mean because I've read the book, but for viewers who are like, wait, what? Boaz is the hero, right? I thought this is the story about, you know, King David's great, great grandfather, whatever. What do you mean by that, the traditional understanding and how does it detract from his true character? Well, actually, I grew up on the Cinderella version of the Book of Ruth, and um, I love that story. I, I'm a pastor's daughter, so I grew up in the church, and it was a Bible church. And, you know, by, as soon as we could, we were all reading our Bibles through every year, and so I knew this story as well as my own. And you know how wonderful it was that Ruth and Boaz got married, but I never could accept the happily ever after. Mm. You know, the Bible doesn't teach us happily ever after. You know, the Bible talks a lot about struggle and, and you know, stories that don't work out beautifully in the end. And, but when I started hearing what scholars were saying more recently in their research into the book of Ruth, it went off like a bomb in my life. And it made me realize that all three of the characters in this story, the main ones, are cheated of the true credit that they get for what they do, what the actions and sacrifices they make. And, you know, I think we have to really look at Boaz. He's introduced as a man of stature. And, you know, so in, after all the men in the story, Naomi's husband and her two sons, one of whom is the husband of Ruth, all die. And the women are left without husbands. And they're in a foreign land because they have Naomi's family has fled a famine in Bethlehem and gone to Moab. And 
with her husband and two sons where the two sons end up marrying Moabite girls. And then, you know, the very thing they're fleeing because uh, famines are deadly, mm-hmm. um, death meets them there. And her husband dies and her sons marry pagan girls and then both of them die. And the men are swept off the stage. Mm-hmm. And if you had asked the women in the story, so what's the story now? They would both tell you there is no story here. But the biblical camera zooms in on these childless widows. Mm -hmm. And that's when the real story begins. And readers, when they get to chapter two, and they read that about Boaz, Boaz is introduced into the story. It's sort of like, you know, we, the hero is here, you know, and, and the rescue is going to happen. And, you know, all this tragic story is going to turn out well in the end because He's the hero. One of the things that changed for me when I started hearing deeper interpretations that were coming from scholars who were, their their hermeneutical tools were improving. And so instead of just looking at this Hebrew word and that Hebrew word and, you know, um, maybe you know, what kind of food the people ate and how they gleaned in the fields and, you know, what kinds of things were happening in the story. They actually looked at this as a piece of literature. Mm-hmm. They look at it as a, at a, as a story that is beautifully and artistically woven together. When we look at it, we have chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four and the pieces all get lost and, you know, because we're rushing to this happily ever after. Um, Scholars were saying this is the story of a female Job, that it's Naomi's story, that Ruth is the one who is initiating the action and that Boaz is responding to her initiatives. And I'm sitting in a classroom where I was waiting to hear a lecture on the book of Ruth from uh, Dr. Bruce Walke, who is a good friend of mine. And I was internally rolling my eyes because I thought there's, there's nothing new about this one. I know this one. And when he started talking like that, it went off like a bomb in my life. Because I grew up thinking the word initiate didn't belong in my vocabulary because I was female, Mm -hmm. that I was to be responding and following, and that um, I wasn't to be initiating or leading. But they, they, these scholars are saying she's taking agency. She's deciding to go to Bethlehem against her mother-in-law's wishes and against common sense and she's the one who approaches Boaz with the initiative about gleaning and the initiative about marriage and the kinsman redeemer and Leverett laws. And Boaz, who knows the law, was raised on it, is listening to someone who sees beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And he gets it. And, you know, we think he's, he's the hero of the story. But in order to be a man of stature, 
in a patriarchal, a full-fledged patriarchal culture. He had to have been a married man with sons of his own. I read a book recently that was written by a Jewish uh, journalist who researched life in the Middle East. And she ran across a Palestinian man whose wife gave birth to a daughter and then she couldn't get pregnant again. And he was beside himself. He said, I am nothing in this village without a son. So one of the things that changes how we look at Boaz and how we look at Ruth and Naomi and how we look at all the narratives in the Bible is for us to put patriarchy in its place because this is a patriarchal culture. And we're in 21st century America, which is vastly different from the patriarchal world. I mean, we've tried to salvage elements of patriarchy, but you know, this is nothing like patriarchy the way we live in America. So under patriarchy, patriarchy means father rule. Patriarchy established power with men. It gave fathers power over their sons and daughters. It gave the firstborn son power over his siblings, primogenitures, the rights of the firstborn. It gave men power over women and children and also over other men. More men are under the thumb of patriarchy than empowered by it. And so um, that's the world. And it was a world where a woman's value was gauged by her relationships with men. Who's her father? Who's her husband? How many sons has she produced? And you, you know, women in the Bible who can't get pregnant aren't begging God for daughters. None of them are. They want sons. And so Naomi has two, two sons. So she can hold her head up high. And when her sons die in her and she's widowed and she's past childbearing years, you know, you, you gauged a woman's value by counting her sons. Naomi is a zero in the culture's eyes. And so is Ruth. Even worse, she's, she becomes an immigrant in, in Israel. So she drops below zero. She's a Moabite. Yeah, Moabite. They weren't even allowed in the assembly for X number of generations. So, and and when Boaz sets foot on the stage and he's introduced as a man of stature, he has done his duty for his family. He is a father of sons. And he stands tall in the community and we find out in the end of the story just how very powerful a man he is. But what happens to him is he encounters a young, brand new convert who lives on the hungry side of the law. And the law reads differently from that point of view. The law says, the gleaning law says, let them glean. Let the the widow, the orphan, let them glean. But that means let them into the field after you've cleared your crops for whatever's there. 
The letter of the law says, let them glean, but the spirit of the law says, feed them. And Ruth doesn't want to take home scraps to her despairing mother-in-law. And so she asks to break the rules. They're supposed to glean after the harvesters cut down all the grain and the women bundle it up and it's carried off to the threshing floor. She wants to glean behind the sheaves that have just been cut. And, and Boaz gets what, he gets it. And she goes home that night with 29 pounds of winnowed barley. According to ancient Babylonian records, it would take a, a male harvester a half a month or a full month to take home that much in pay. So it was massive what he was doing. Just in that first episode, Boaz is, for my money, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And he's influenced by a Gentile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, all, it's laughable. I mean, she was risking her life. If you look at places like Afghanistan, where a, if a woman is alone in that culture, what can happen to her? And who will stand up for her? if she doesn't have a father or a brother or a husband or a son. And that's what these went. These women were utterly vulnerable and Naomi knew it. They were toast mm -hmm. <laughs> and there was, there was no future in Bethlehem. There was only going to be danger and suffering and abuse and who knows what all. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there is this man called Boaz who's a different kind of man. Yeah, so Boaz, yes, he gets cheated when he's Lothario, the romantic figure who, right. you know, and, and what's he doing as a very powerful man to be looking at an impoverished immigrant scavenging in his field with romantic intentions? What, what kind of, that's creepy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> This the book of Ruth gets brought up. So I'm in in uh, I've done most ministry to a lot of Christian singles, and I'm single myself and never married. And there's the the story of Ruth is fascinating to me of how it gets presented in ways that are completely at odds with what you actually read in the text. Which is what I liked about your book is it points these ways out. You mentioned Naomi is the one who. Uh, Naomi encourages Ruth to pursue Boaz because obviously Ruth, I think exactly what you're saying. She's like, I'm a Moabite. So already detested in this country. Um, I'm poor. I'm a widow. I've got nothing. And this is like the big guy in town, the, the man of stature. Everybody knows him and he has a good reputation. Why would he ever talk to, you know, so it doesn't make sense to look at it that, that she would be looking at it through the eyes of like, I'm going to, uh, initiate a romance but Naomi is like no I know his character and she's like you need to do once she sees what he gives her back his character is revealed through his generosity to the poor and his generosity to the immigrant and his generosity to the widow and to the the ones at the margins of society and he shows it by literally giving them food and saying here take this back 
feed Naomi, feed your, you know, mother-in-law. Uh, it's, okay. it's a powerful instance. So of, if he's if he's in love with her, why doesn't he send her home and say, "You don't ever have to come back here again. I'm going to send my my harvester around with a load for you, and we'll just you'll have food mm -hmm. all the time." Why, you know? I mean, it's it's sort of it's very hard to justify any interest romantic interest he would have in her as a man of stature yeah. you know marriages under patriarchy are arranged to benefit the family and this is just not going to do it yeah yeah <laughs> you know so he's dishon if he hasn't if he's not married with sons of his own I mean, maybe he's widowed or not, but this is a polygamous culture. He could have three wives for all we know. And if he does, hasn't produced sons, then he would be a he would be a grief and a shame to his family. And you know, I I think that we have to. This is where we have to look again at patriarchy, because I my thesis where I've landed on patriarchy is that patriarchy, when we study the Bible, patriarchy matters. And we need to understand it if we're going to understand these stories. Because here's what I landed on when it comes to interpreting these narratives. Boaz is not the hero of this story. If you're going to have a hero of this story, it's going to be Ruth. But the hero of the story is always Yahweh. God is the hero. And this is a story about a woman who's lost everything. And she is convinced that God no longer loves her. The key word in the book of Ruth is the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's self-giving love for his people. And it's how, it's the kind of love that all three of these characters end up displaying for each other. It calls for sacrifice and it calls for putting the interests of others ahead of yourself. And so Naomi thinks God had, she's Job. She's a, she's a Job figure. You know, she doesn't believe he loves her. She thinks he's raised his hand against her, that he's her enemy. And she's embittered by that. And this load of grain that Ruth brings home is what turns the tide for Naomi. And she says, he has not forgotten his hesed for the living and for the dead. So even her husband and her sons are not forgotten. Yeah, and it's tied to that physical gift of grain sparks. It's it's fascinating to me. It's a gift that, that, that somebody would say, well, it's just charity. I mean, it was, but you mentioned, you know, why would Boaz not just say, go home and never work again? I, that To me, that's one of the beauties of the book is Boaz and Ruth the, the fact that he's letting her glean and, and, and telling his workers, hey, let her, don't just let her glean, pull out some extra sheaves, make sure she's taken care of, but in a way that's not just handing down, it's, it's giving her. It's, she's working. She's working. <laughs> she's producing with her hand. So she's, what she got is a gift, but it's also something that she worked for. 
And I see that as both of them. It, it, the Book of Ruth gives honor to both people. And it, in the eyes of the culture, in the eyes of uh, each other, in the eyes of God, there's just so much overflowing. And that's what you said. That's chesed. That's the epitome of chesed is yeah. this undeserved, undesi- uh, unmerited grace that expresses itself in tangible support. And yeah. that's what changes Naomi's whole, you know, she's not, don't call me bitter anymore like god's actually doing something and she's starting to see the light she knows she's loved when she Mm -hmm. gets that look it's excessive and and even ruth brings home cooked grain so there's a fast food meal (laughs) first fast food meal in the bible but it's you know it is absolutely extraordinary especially when you consider he's coming out of a famine he's in economic recovery and he's being this generous um what i where i've landed in how i look at these narratives is first of all to always remind myself that god is the hero of the story that the book of Ruth is about God. It's about God's love. It's about his purposes. It's about his freedom to use anyone he chooses to advance his purposes for the world and that he can do it through the most covert, unexpected ways. None of three of them ever knew what God was actually doing for the world through their sacrifices. And so God is always the hero of the story. Mm -hmm. And um, as Americans, when we open our Bibles, we have to tell ourselves again and again, we are not reading an American book. And and when we look at it through an American lens, we're going to end up with Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the Bible teaches us, ever. (laughs) <laughs> all the way through we are not promised prosperity and you know sailing into the future with everything we ever dreamed of we're told we'll suffer and that we have to make sacrifices yeah. and you know so it's so it's that and so we need to understand patriarchy we need to understand that this is a world where men are empowered that it empowers men and it disempowers women and yet in this story god is empowering the women and the man who has the power uses his power in sacrificial ways to advance the good of other people so he doesn't shed his power or his privilege he uses it how do you shed your power (laughs) you know how would a man do that but men all through the bible including Jesus, use their power. They use it. It's a gift from God. He entrusts power to his image bearers in Genesis 1, not for selfish ends, but for hesed, to to use your power the way God uses his power, to bless and to do good. So, you know, Boaz is amazing. Yeah. And what you point out in the book is that Boaz, he is a good man. And Ruth coming along and, you know, I mean, Ruth straight up proposes to Boaz in in ancient cultural terms and basically says, marry me. And uh, but in a way that's culturally couched enough to avoid uh, wanton impropriety, but is still appointed he's getting the message and it's not going to be mistaken. And, And there's a whole discussion about that 
in the book, in your book, as well as when we teach through her in the podcast. So I encourage viewers to check that out. But the thing that that you know on page 205 of your book is you say, um, Boaz, a truly good man, becomes a better man because of Ruth. And, and I agree. I think a good man and a good godly woman, they're both uh, uh, men of Chayel, uh, a woman of Chayel and a man of Chayel. Strength is how it's often translated. And both of them are described that way. And so it's like two godly people, one Gentile, immigrant, widow, poor, destitute, and one has everything on the platter seemingly, you know, and they come together, they both make each other better. And it's so, the whole book of Ruth is so interesting is it's so mundane. It's about picking grain in a field and getting married, but yet that is the origin of the greatest king in Israel's history up until Jesus. So it's like God's telling this vast cosmic story through the lens of this ancient Near East agricultural account. And, it, and there's so much in it that, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. What no, but it, the, I called this book the gospel of Ruth because it is the gospel. And, you know, the threshing floor scene is, is very confusing to 21st century Americans, but it is saturated with mosaic law. And it's saturated with sacrifice. And all three of the main characters are making huge sacrifices in that in that encounter. You know, Ruth is not looking for a husband for herself. She is demonstrably barren. She's had 10 years of marriage without a son, without a girl, <laughs> without a daughter. But Naomi knows that Ruth is going to outlive her and she will be stranded in Bethlehem as an immigrant. And she wants to get her under a male umbrella. And so I, what Naomi is doing is giving up everything she has when she gives up Ruth. But she wants her to be protected. That's, you know, and the, and the first readers of this story would not blink at the thought that you know, Boaz, who has to have had sons, whether he's widowed or what, whatever, that this is a this is a polygamous culture. Nobody would blink at him adding a wife, and um, you know, they did more than that following him in in biblical narratives. But Ruth is going to Boaz, not looking for shelter. She's throwing the book at him. She's throwing the Kinsman Redeemer law and the Leverett law at him. Mm -hmm. And she's proven herself to be infertile. So it's, it's a huge risk for her, but she wants as Kinsman Redeemer, the nearest relative is obligated to purchase the dead man's law, land. So she's talking about real estate, and so is he. He talks about Naomi is selling her land. And the nearer relative would probably inherit it without any action because there's no male heir in Naomi's family. So it's, you know, that's why I say loving God enough to break the rules. They're breaking the law of God open so that they're going beyond the letter of the law. And to produce a, a male heir for Naomi's dead husband 
is for a blood brother to do that. That's what the Leverett Law says. And and Boaz is none of these. He's completely within the letter of the law. But Nail but but Ruth's in in action interactions with him point to the spirit of the law. And he gets that. And so Ruth is Though she is barren, she is volunteering to bear a son. I mean, she's putting that whole painful narrative back in action. If she doesn't get pregnant, it'll just be more of the same nightmare. And Boaz is being asked to take from his own son's inheritance to invest in Elimelech's land. And if Ruth gives birth to a son, that will be Elimelech's heir, and it will be a losing investment for Boaz. I mean, everybody is making sacrifice. It's the gospel. The The threshing floor scene is an Old Testament prefiguring of Jesus' gospel, because all three of them are making sacrifices for the others. And, it doesn't yeah. make sense in the eyes of that culture what Boaz would do. And and Boaz doesn't have any promise that anyone will ever remember. You know, it's like we get we read this from the, our end of history, knowing this is Jesus's lineage. This is David's grand, great grandparents. <laughs> yeah. And but but at the time, Boaz has none of that, no concept of that. He's just I like what you said. I had our first guest we ever had on the Disciple Dojo for one of these discussions was Carmen Imes. And a, a phenomenal Old Testament scholar, and just a wonderful friend of mine, and we talked about the beauty of the law, and her book Why Sinai Still Matters. The beauty of the law is the law provided not rule by rule by rule. If you follow it, everything's good. The law gave you opportunity to have a relational and a faith-filled uh, walk with God. So the the to me the paramount example of that is the law of gleaning where the law just says, leave the edge of your field and let the widow and the orphan and the immigrant come through. It never says how much of the edge. So it gives you a chance. Are you going to just keep the bare minimum and be a miser and leave one row of grain? Or are you going to be like, hey, this law is for the benefit of the people who need it. Let me be as generous and responsibly as I can and let me provide for those who don't have the means, but not just handouts. They have to glean, they have to work, they have to come get it. But I'm going to use, like you said, I'm going to use my power to provide means for other people to to do what God's economy has set up. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right. Boaz sees beyond what's the requirement of the law. And he sees to uh, what's the spirit of the law. And, and that's to me, and, and Ruth and Naomi both as well, uh, the whole, all three of them just epitomize, this is why the book's so fascinating to me as an Old Testament teacher, is it shows Christians, hey, there's, the gospel is in the law. God's grace is in the law. Chesed is in the law because the law is not just do this, do this, do this, and everything's fine. Yeah. It provides the, that chance of grace. The point you make that a load of grain is so ordinary everything in this story really is just mundane you know do we do we get to eat you know and will there be another generation in our family it's not about 
is so interesting. There's no prophet, there's no priest, there's no vision, there's no voice from heaven. It's God's people living out the gospel and how they treat each other. And it's Mm -hmm. just phenomenal, (laughs) you know, but it's just as ordinary as going to the grocery store or filling your tank of gas or mowing your neighbor's lawn. The God works, God works, God works through everything. It's not just, you know, writing books or preaching sermons in churches or going to the mission field. It's sharing a moment with somebody who's lonely. It's, you know, sharing a sandwich with somebody who's hungry. It's about listening to somebody who's grieving and just being with them. I mean, God works through everything. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the part I love about the book of Ruth is that they never knew. Yeah. And we think, you know, I, I've met with, and my father was one of these, but some of the men who have ministered to me and taught me spiritually, when they became elderly, the phone quit ringing. They stopped getting invitations to preach. And they felt like God wasn't using them anymore. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, we're all out here and you've equipped us. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, God is using somebody in the book of Ruth who's just trying to feed her mother-in-law. And the purposes of God are moving forward for the whole world Mm -hmm. through what she's doing. And, you know, I just think I love to think about that because, you know, you have no idea how many people are blessed by your podcast. You have no idea or where something you say goes from one of them to somebody else. To the, you know, we don't know what God is doing. And no matter what we think he is doing, we've underestimated him. And he can use the most, the least likely person, a woman, a woman from Moab, (laughs) a pagan woman from Moab who wouldn't obey her mother-in-law and, you know, was just frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) She was God's pick. Yeah. And she was the one, you know, that triggered, he used to trigger everything that happened. I mean, I, I take great encouragement from that, you know, that we may think the big names are the ones who, that God is using, you know, to accomplish great things in the world, but it may be some immigrant, you know, squeezing over the border, or it may be some person who's you know, just hoping somebody will throw a coin in the cup that they've got in front of them. It may be that person. We don't know. Yeah, we, we the one thing we is, that is certain that Jesus has made very clear is on the day when all things are revealed, there are going to be a lot of surprises. And yeah. a lot of the people who thought they accomplished the most for the kingdom are going to be surprised. And it's people who didn't think <laughs> they didn't do anything are going to be surprised as well. And God's standard yeah. is... Yeah, it's I, Ruth. Ruth is a great book for that lesson oh. and, and giving people the hope that they need when they, like you say about Naomi, when she's at ground zero, and just feels like 
everything is done. Life is done. There's nothing left. And she's not a young lady and she's lost everything. And so from a worldly perspective, the first chapter of Ruth would be the end of her story. Absolutely. And yet it becomes the beginning. So I, we, we could talk about Ruth all day. Um, and I think people, if you haven't re what viewers who are watching this and maybe you're not familiar with Ruth as, as familiar. And so you're like, wait a minute, I don't remember these scenes or this thing It's four chapters. Go read the book again, but read it with Carolyn's book, gospel of Ruth as and kind then, of a guide. And, and then her, one. yeah. Tell me about the newest book and what's different about that than gospel. Oh my of goodness. Ruth. Okay. This book is, a, I was asked to write another book about the book of Ruth and there's just more to say. Mm -hmm. Um, by the time this book, I started writing this book, we were having problems with refugees and immigrants. Well, Naomi is a, is a refugee, her family. They are famine refugees. That's what our world is full of today. Mm -hmm. And Ruth is an immigrant. She's an undocumented immigrant. Mm -hmm. She has no right to be in Bethlehem. And, you know, she has no legal rights as a woman in the patriarchal world. And so there's a chapter in here about and the real quick, the name of the book, show the book cover just so they can finding see God in the margins. And that's like saying, you know, you think God's working in the big steeple places, right? He's working in the margins. And one of the chapters in this that I love and that you will love, I think, is called the manly side of the story. Mm -hmm. Because commentaries think that the, you know, the men are out of the story in the first five verses, but those men, Elimelech and his two sons are in every chapter of this book and the rescue that is being implemented by Ruth to produce a son is to rescue them because they don't have, they haven't left a male heir and she's producing one for them. So, you know, when, Samuel goes to anoint King David. He goes to Elimelech's land, which is what Obed and Jesse and his seven sons inherited. And Boaz is still, he's the father of them all, but that's not his property. That's right. not where his sons have lived. The men are all through it and they're very important to the story. And, you know, you, God doesn't play favorites. He calls his daughters to kingdom work and he calls his sons to kingdom work and he calls them to do it together. Yeah. So it's not an either or and like we've turned it into in our own culture, it's not. And well, God breaks those rules himself. Yeah, and, and we get clues through of, of this throughout scripture, Old and New Testament of, of God said there, there being norms in cultures and societies and then there's that scripture has this funny way of the, always something popping up that puts a wrinkle in those cultural norms and so example of ruth i mean that's a huge example a gentile a moabite moabites were forbidden a deuteronomy moabite shall not enter the assembly of the people and yet god brings who a moabite in to be the heir or the grandmother great-grandmother of the king of israel king david so there are these little hints throughout scripture of God subverting these things that are taken for granted. One of them in your book that, and we've talked about here at the dojo and, and in the, the superior seminary video is the term Azer. 
the Hebrew word that gets translated, I think, atrociously translated as helper or helpmate. I think those are horrendously chosen English words. They may have been fine in the 1600s, but they do not mean in modern English what the Hebrew word ezer actually means. And so I wanted to, before me, because this is, I want you, not me, to tell what I think, but how do you think that term, because you have a section on it, how do you think that term is best, if not translated, how do you think it best explained to people who have been told all their life, you're a woman, you got to be a helper, be a good helper, let the husband lead, let the man do what needs to be done, and you just come along and help him. How, How do you explain this term to them? Well, it, that came out in the very first book I wrote. Um, I, I didn't get married right after college. I had a decade of singleness. And I always felt like when that passage, when Genesis 2 was being taught, which is where the word Acer shows up, that I was out of that conversation because I wasn't a wife. Mm-hmm. And I went back to that text to ask the question, is God creating the woman or is he creating a wife? It doesn't talk about marriage until the very end of that chapter when it applies that text to marriage in a very anti-patriarchal statement when it says, for this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. But under patriarchy, the wife becomes the property of her husband's family. And it works that way still today in patriarchal cultures. So, you know, already the roots of patriarchy are being yanked up. But when I looked at that word, my father taught me that the the Azer was a spiritual helper. But and so that was where I started. But I went back at and I looked at it and I thought, you know what, this is this is the creation of the female. And so it ought to include us from our first breath to our final breath. You know, not just a certain season of life. You know, when my mother is widowed, she's no longer an Azer. Or, you know, if someone never marries, she's not an Azer. This is the name God gave his daughters. And it's a word that's used all the way through the Old Testament. And I as a noun 21 times it's used three times for nations that israel is seeking military aid from they're being overpowered and they need help and 16 times it's used for god as the azer of his people and the remaining two times it's used for the woman in genesis 2. and i looked up the word and it in in other forms, it's it's used always in a military sense. And even Robert Alter thinks that this is a military term. You know, send your armies, we're being attacked. When they're calling on God to help them, they're not just asking for him to be gentle with them. They want help. Right. You know, they need to be rescued. Their enemies are, are violent and dangerous and vicious. The Garden of Eden was also a war zone. There was an enemy getting ready to attack. What do you you call that? And I concluded from that, that the Azer is a warrior and that she is called to stand in the battle for God's kingdom alongside her brother 
And that's what you see in the book of Ruth. And that's what you see when Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus for his for his burial. He says that's what she's doing. She got what he was she got his mission and she stood with him in that battle and you see it over and over and over again in the bible where a woman steps up onto the pages of scripture and god works through her deborah and barak and jail that is a blessed alliance of god's image bearers and they're all in the same battle doing what god calls them to do and i azer is my pennsylvania license plate oh nice because <laughs> I like that stamped on the back of me wherever I go because yeah. I have responsibility and, you know, the, the the teaching that women need to hold back and they need to be quiet and they shouldn't do this or that. You know, when I stand before Jesus, nobody's going to be standing there with me saying, well, we told her not to do that. <laughs> you know, I want to, I don't want to be explaining why I did too little. I have responsibility for what opportunities and privileges that God gives me and what gifts he gives me. And, you know, I, I think we're called, I think Genesis one and two trumps all the other texts in scriptures that God called his sons and daughters to stand together, to look after things in the world on his behalf and to be actual reflections of his character mm-hmm. that we participate as image bearers in divine revelation so you know i'm not asking anybody to hold back and i've got little girls in middle school who are riled up <laughs> to stand up for what god is doing and to look after their friends and to be kind and to be generous and yeah. You know, and elderly women who say, I thought my story was over and that I was finished, but God has more for me to do. I love that. So, and it's not a war against our brothers. We want them to be strong and we want them to do what God is calling them to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not a, it's not a competition. Yeah. I think I, when it comes to trans, transit, because I've thought a lot about how to translate Azer and when I teach on it and how to make people understand and get rid of the English baggage that the word helper has. You know, we think hamburger helper. It's not the main thing. It helps the hamburger. It's hamburger helper. Uh, that's not what God has called women to be. They're not man helper. They're Azer. And the point you made, I want to make sure viewers catch this. Azer, other than the Genesis passage, it is never used in a way that's either not describing military aid or not talking about God and how he helps Israel. So whatever you think helper means, you, it has to apply to the, that concept. As, as I, I like the word ally um, or something that connotes, like, like you said, teammate. People. An alliance is what yes. the language I use is the blessed in Genesis one that God calls male and female to an alliance that he blesses. It's a blessed yes. alliance. It's a kingdom strategy yeah. that the enemy dismantled. Yes, because he gave them he the creation mandate was go and and have dominion, subdue, fill the earth 
and subdue it. And so then the, there's a need for a coming battle, and it's hinted at even in Genesis 1, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, you don't subdue something unless there's going to be a struggle. And so then Genesis 2, we see this subduing it is not going to be at least intended to be a solo act. It's going to be male and female because both are the imago dei both are the image of god male and female he created them the parallelism in the hebrew is clear that male and female is referring to the image of god so i that's how genesis 1 and 2 complement each other and ruth i think is not the only example you mentioned some and, and in the old testament if we think of deborah like you said but also people like phoebe and uh the litany of women that paul thanks and greets at the end of romans so the fact that Jesus appears to the women first, whose testimony wouldn't be held up in a court, and says, now you go tell my disciples. So well, his I disciples think, would have to take the voice of women, even if a courtroom wouldn't. I think one of the funniest texts in the Bible comes when the Apostle Paul is on his missionary journey, and he gets interrupted by a vision to go to Macedonia. And a man is is the spokesman in that vision and he goes to macedonia and he can't find anyone any believers in the synagogue and he goes to a place of prayer and what he ends up finding is a group of praying women and he sits down this is the former uh religious terrorist mm -hmm. the, the <laughs> Yeah. The anti-Christian, yeah. the the killer, sits down and leads a women's Bible study. <laughs> and when he writes to the Philippian church, he says, I thank God every time I remember you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day. From the first day, it was his partnership with women. You know, they were the church plant, the first church planters in Europe was Paul and a group of women. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny because, you know, translations and commentaries, they completely miss that, but it's right there. <laughs> and I just, I love it because, you know, what would he be expecting after a vision? <laughs> you know, a big right. stadium full of people breathly, breathlessly waiting for his <laughs> message. But it's a group of women, Gentile yeah. women. <laughs> yeah, that's another example. It's just one of those ways the Bible just will subvert. It's almost like scripture delights in subverting, just like Jesus did, delights in subverting yes. our cultural expectations. Well, yes. let's. I, I, I want to keep this moving because we're having a great discussion, and I want to get to uh, speaking of cultural uh, subversion. So your new book, Maelstrom, and it is not spelled Maelstrom like the word, but M-A-L-E, Maelstrom. So I want you <laughs> tell us about the book and um, and how you see what like your goal in writing it and how it intersects with recent popular work like Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, what just it, make us came, open yeah. us up to the book? Go for it. It first came out in um, 2015, and it was um, the last book that I've written so far. It was, um, I was drawn to it by two things. One was that I was running, as I was studying women in the Bible, I kept running into men who get overlooked, whose stories are breathtaking. 
like Judah, mm-hmm. J- Jacob's fourth son, who's a monster <laughs> in the story. He really is just an awful, awful yeah. man. Um, and you have uh, Barak in in the story with Deborah in jail, and everybody beats up Barak. Mm-hmm. Says he's a wimp, and he has to. You know, t- can't depend on women. He can't. He's a fraidy cat. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, then you have Joseph who marries Mary, um, but is gonna put his life behind supporting his wife's calling. <laughs> you know, if, if these stories that sort of break the rules and that that we don't know quite what to do with. And what I saw in their stories was a different kind of masculinity than what patriarchy promotes the power over others instead it's a it's a it's a different way of living it's a gospel it's a gospel brand of masculinity that that reflects jesus they they end up doing that and the other thing that drew me was that it was at the time when isis was you know, scaring the daylights out of all of us. And there were young men from Western countries, including the United States, who were signing up for ISIS. And they and the experts who were studying that movement were saying that they were they were drawn to ISIS because they were longing for a sense of meaning, purpose, and belonging. And I said to myself, where are we in that conversation and why aren't we drawing them and so i started to write these stories and what i realized in the very first beginning of it all was that i was writing about patriarchy and the damage that it does and um for example in the book of genesis what what patriarchy does is it gives special privileges like crown prince privileges to a man's firstborn son and brothers in the book of genesis are killing each other over that you know cain kills abel you know ishmael is driven out Esau by, wants to kill Jacob. Yeah, by <laughs> by rights of, of Isaac. And Esau wants to kill Jacob, and Jacob has to run for his life. When it comes to Jacob's sons, it's all at war. Because it's not Leah's sons, it's Rachel's son, Jacob's 11th son, who is being treated as the firstborn son. And he does get the double inheritance. There are two tribal territories that his descendants take ownership of. And it's, you know, it's Walter Brueggemann calls it the linchpin of patriarchy, primogeniture, the rights of the firstborn. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, it's they're killing each other over it and it's destroying their families and it's ruining relationships and um, it's 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 leading to criminal activity, <laughs> you know? And it's it's like, this is a destructive force. This is not what you see in Genesis 1 at all. 
that we're called to care for creation and to look after it on God's as God's agents. Instead, it's about power and we want power and we want it over others. And we're, we're willing to kill our brothers or traffic them into slavery in order to get that power. And I, I came to the conclusion that patriarchy is not the Bible's message. It's the backdrop to the Bible's message. And that when you put patriarchy behind these stories, these narratives in the Bible, the power just leaps off the page. And I'll give you a really simple example of this. When Mary of Bethany sits at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, her sister is offended that she is not helping out in preparing a meal for a big crowd. And, you know, it's, it's the rules are being broken here. And Jesus says she has chosen what matters most and it won't be taken away from her. And when preachers come to that text, they are at a loss to make a big deal out of it. You know, they talk about being too busy or not doing your quiet time or blah, right. blah, blah. Well, take that story, take that story to Pakistan or to Afghanistan and show that to the girls there. They'll tell you what Jesus is doing and they'll also love him for what he does for women and girls by saying, you need to learn just as the men need to learn. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's radical. Mm -hmm. And when we read it, you know, we, we just make sap out of it. Right. We really do. So Martha's just too busy and yeah. Mary has a good devotional life and you're yeah. exactly right it becomes we read that we read everything through our own lens and i think every culture is guilty of that you know every culture yeah. you we all have lenses and so the the goal of good biblical interpretation is to show us what our lenses are and then yeah. help us to put on the other lenses that the original readers would have read it through and when we do i think you're exactly right now here, let me ask you this though because we, we've used the term patriarchy numerous times in this episode so far. Some people watching this may not have ever heard the term. Other people watching this may have heard the term and have it, it may, and it means something completely different to them. So how are you defining and using the term patriarchy versus maybe how other cultural uh, movements, non-Christian outside the church, how they might use the term patriarchy, and, and is there any difference? Well, I think culturally it's, you know, it's it's worldwide. It's worldwide. It's like a shocking moment if a woman becomes prime minister of her country. Hmm. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, well, this is just an exception to the rule or something. But it's you know, it's God's intention that both his sons and daughters would do his work in the world and that they would be stronger if they did it together than if they 
if they did it separately. When when we had the 2008 financial crisis, some of the economic experts were saying, would we be in the same boat if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters instead of just Lehman Brothers? Because different decisions get made when you have more interaction and different perspectives and, you know, more than than gender and even different racial or cultural perspectives. But, you know, I think patriarchy is it's not God's intention for any of us to have power over others. Um, it's it's we're empowered to take care of things, to look after things on him on his behalf and to reflect his heart for the world and how we do that and you know it's it's i find in my ministry i run into some of the most extraordinary men in in how they are empowering others around them and valuing the input of other people and um and they're strong and i don't and i like i said about boaz he did not shed his male power and privilege he used it but he didn't use it in selfish ways mm-hmm. and um and his back was against the wall because it was costly for him it was a losing <laughs> a losing gamble for him that the nearer redeemer wasn't willing to risk and um but he stands tall as a as a true man mm-hmm. you know for how he lived and there are others like him in scripture I, you know i think joseph in matthew's gospel is just incredible and mm-hmm. you know barak is facing a david and goliath battle and he wants to know if god's in the battle and and the message to him from god is if I want to win this battle against this Putin of my of your time, I can do it with a woman by herself, you know. So it's it's about the real hero of the story, yeah. who is God. There, tell me, maybe I want to get your thoughts on this. What I see observing cultural discussions surrounding patriarchy, and and this bleeds into a lot of like pop culture. I mean, you see, I'm you know superhero comic nerd and all the Marvel <laughs> movies and stuff. There is a uh, controversy among like I'm going to use comic book movies because that's one example that I can think of where it seems, but it's in like the Star Wars movies and the Marvel movies and everything. There are some properties, some shows that have strong women in powerful positions that are well written and that are that are great. And and everybody seems to kind of like like Mandalorian is a great example. One of the char- number of the characters are these strong, literally and emotionally strong women, but they don't take anything away from the, the male characters like Mandalorian and the others. And people seem to like, I mean, even like the most toxic misogynist nerd culture <laughs> seems to really like that. But then you have other times where it's almost as if other creators think, okay, for the women to be strong in this movie or this show, there has to be a moment where they undercut the man. And they, and they have to make the man look, bring the man down a peg 
so that the woman can be brought up a peg. And there's been there's a new show about She-Hulk, and then there's some controversy like is that what's happening there? And some people say yes, and some people say no. And that is neither here nor there. But it's a dynamic that I see as an observer, as a Christian observer, that there's a mistaken notion that in order to uh, correct or, or, or subvert the patriarchy, which I think scripture does do, I think you're absolutely right, that that means you have to make men look incompetent. You have to do the Homer Simpson syndrome where the man is the doofus dad that doesn't know how to do anything and the wife is the beautiful, smart. I mean, every sitcom, this is the formula for. And people think, ha, that's smashing the patriarchy. That's putting men in their place. Girl power, rawr. You know, people, and, and I look at it and I go, that's not, that's not empowering women or men. That's worldly form of trying to take people down a peg because it's a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And and it what what I he, what I hear you saying and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong is that it in God's kingdom it's not a zero sum game it's a both win game when both are lifted up together as strong leaders but that runs contrary to our fallen culture where it has been patriarchal in the sense that yes women are subservient and women men do call the shots am i is that fair to say am i reading what do you oh yeah i think i mean i think there's fear of you know that men are demeaned through this that's why i was so shocked by those stories that i wrote about in maelstrom that these men aren't playing by patriarchy's rules Mm -hmm. and their, their stories are breathtaking. You know, Judah's story, when pastors come to Genesis 38, they tend to skip it. <laughs> you know, because it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to preach a G, you know, to a G audience when yes. you've got prostitution in R-rated the material. story. Yeah. <laughs> but and it's also frustrating when, and I've been frustrated by this, when you're reading through Genesis and you get to Joseph is being sold into slavery and they're deceiving their father and you want to know what is happening to Joseph. You want to go with Joseph right. and instead you go with Judah and it's sort of like, ooh, why are we doing, why are we doing this? We don't like him, yeah. you know? But when he, and, and there's a mistranslation in that text where Judah says she is she is more righteous than I. He does, it's not what he's saying. He's saying she is righteous. I am not. Mm-hmm. And the, tra- the it didn't make sense to the translators to say that, so they fixed it. And you know, but he's saying she's righteous. I am not. And he's looking at himself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And the man we see after that collision with Tamar is a different man. Hmm. And when he faces the brother, when he realizes what's at stake and that Benjamin is now at risk and he doesn't know he's talking to Joseph, but he's, but he talks about his father and his brother and he's, and he's, instead of fighting for his the rights of firstborn which it seems by his older brother's behavior he's the one entitled to inherit mm-hmm. way the way he talks he's a different man 
I mean, it, it makes me weep to read that. And you can't account for that change if you don't talk about what happened with with Tamar because she, she confronted him with himself mm-hmm. and with his responsibility to his sons. And she's blessed with the birth of two sons to replace two dead husbands when she's when she delivers the child that that he impregnated. It's two. Yeah. And she's and another Gentile, I believe. She's yeah. another Gentile he, woman in the line of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. That's right. That's right. And he says she is righteous. I am not. But then he then he offers himself for his little brother Benjamin that his father is now it's he's now his father's favorite mm-hmm. so it's you know it's those are the kinds of stories that are in Maelstrom and these men I love them and they give us a vision of masculinity that is full of Jesus even in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and it's about the true hero of the story and they begin to reflect him more true truly i mean three of the men in in maelstrom should have been behind bars <laughs> you know judah should have been matthew should have been in the apostle paul saul of tarsus they all should have been in legal trouble for their crimes they mm-hmm. they were criminal <laughs> they were criminals and god reached out and changed them I mean, it's. A, I love their stories. They're just. There's so much hope, and you know, God loves His sons. Mm-hmm. And this is not a male bashing book. It's a book where the stories of men and Jesus included are just so powerful and so hope filled, yeah. and so transforming. Mm-hmm. Well, now, how do you? How, when you you say this is not a male bashing book, because that's the first thought many people have, men and women. I'm finding a lot of women who, when they hear the word patriarchy or feminism or anything, they immediately, they don't want anything to do with it because they start associating it with radical left-wing politics or with certain cultural movements. And so as Christians, and, and I deal with this a lot with, with my, my outreaches, I teach jujitsu and self-defense to refugee kids here in Charlotte, a free wow. weekly program. And because of all the reasons that we've talked about with Ruth and with Gentiles and, and some half of my students are girls. Um, and so teaching them to be little Azers and, and not just little princesses. But it, whenever I start talking about that work, people start say, oh, well, you must be, and then they'll just assign a, a socio-political stance and think that I'm that. So I have to constantly uh, undermine that expectation that people have. So how do you, what are some ways that you try to reach men and women who do hear the word patriarchy through the lens of cable news, either for or against, and are not hearing it through what you want to be a gospel-centered or a scripture-focused way. How do you navigate that without being, I mean, we're always gonna be misunderstood. How do you mitigate that misunderstanding as much as possible when you're trying to reach people? Yeah, you know, I had a a 
seminary professor come to the, one of the conferences that I used to lead with um, women in ministry, women who wanted to be in ministry, and it wasn't about the gender debate. We, we were going to talk about our work and the challenges that we were facing. And so it was complementarians and egalitarians, and they were helping each other <laughs> and forging friendships. But, you know, I just said when I started that, we're not doing that. You know, we're tired of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, if women, if women want to be ordained, they know where they can go to be ordained. And they also know where it's never going to happen. Um, but, but, you know, I, I want to call women to answer God's call on their life, whatever that is. And, you know, I have to answer for myself. And I can't stop people who say, oh, you're just trying to be woke. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I have to do what I think is right. And, I you know, my work is out in the public and, you know, this seminary professor who came to my conference was looking for, you know, how, how he was going to cringe over what was being talked about. And he loved it. And he said, "There's that's not happening here. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be um, berating our brothers. We, we're the Azers. <laughs> that's our job is in part to champion them and how God is calling them. You know, when I got married, one of the first things that my husband did was to call me to step up and do what God's calling me to do. Cause I was raised to think, okay, we're doing him now. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, that's not how this works. But I have to say I'm a hundred percent behind him. Mm-hmm. He, I don't ever want him to feel alone and I don't ever want him to hold back from what God is calling him to do, no matter how hard it is. And I have other male friends that I feel the same about. We Mm -hmm. can't afford to spare anyone. And if a man is thinking he can do it by himself, it's costing all of us because he can do better if he joins ranks with the Azers in his life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, we need each other. And I sell it, I'll say it again, it is God's kingdom strategy to divide men and women in the work God has called us to do. So, I mean, you know, you, you know, you've got women friends that you're engaged with, other female scholars that mm-hmm. you respect and learn from and you know what if you said i can, i don't need to learn from you <laughs> you know but you're not you're doing that yeah, you're yeah, not doing that and and there are like i've said there are plenty of blind spots in scripture that we do not see because our view is limited one of the first eye-opening moments for me was when I heard a blind uh, not a blind but a deaf man preach on Jesus healing of a deaf man Hmm. and there were things that he noticed about that exchange that you don't notice if you can hear because Jesus takes the man away from the crowd he looks up to heaven and he sighs Hmm. he touches the man's ears and his tongue 
he's signing. <laughs> you know, it's not just this is the particular tactic for this particular ailment. It's that he's talking to the man who can't hear him. Hmm. And this man was preaching that. So it was it was amazing, you know, because yeah. there were things that I just never saw. That's enough. Can, yeah. That's an yeah. example of those the lenses that we have that we oh, aren't even amazing. aware of. Yeah. It's rich. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. Is. I that that's a cha- that's an ongoing challenge that that we who do biblical education face is getting people to see through the not just the ancient lenses but also how different modern lenses affect how we read or how we view scripture. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that why you know at Disciple Dojo we we try to um, uh, amplify the voices of non-traditional outlets that are in an evangelical sense. For so for instance, I'm very big on amplifying the voice of my friends who are Palestinian. I've spent time in Palestine among Palestinian Christians, and and it's not a perspective that people in America typically get for political and for theological reasons. And it's not because I think that that's the true voice that everybody needs to hear, but it's because that is a valid voice that will make Mm -hmm. our cultural blind spots more aware. And then we can, if we choose to engage and and disagree with a point or same thing with, with a female scholar, colleagues and friends of mine who are females, I don't look at it like I need to say that I need to push this person in front of everybody because it's a woman. I'm like, well, no, I need to push this person because she's a phenomenal scholar and people need to see women who are phenomenal scholars so that it's not seen as weird or abnormal, but it's seen as, oh, that's a valid calling too. And they're going to have insight that I didn't have as a man. And and that's how we we have to be listening to the ears of other people. It applies with, with I, I see it in friends that are white that get real nervous around conversations of race and ethnicity and social justice. There's a, you know, some people call it white fragility. Uh, some people have called it, I, I like the term white normality is people think that, that that just is normal. You have the normal world, which is a white world. And then you have all the other exotic, even if they love it, it's still weird and exotic and other. And I, I think that in and of itself needs to be undermined and, and eroded. But we, we, we have a tendency, we have a knee-jerk reaction against things sometimes because of the baggage that gets attached. And I know people who, if I even put the word patriarchy in the title of this video, I know some self-professing evangelical Christians who will watch this entire discussion through the lens of, oh, these are two woke Democrats talking about left-wing politics. And we're not even touching on any of those things, but they'll view it through that lens. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a shame. I I don't think there's anything you can do. I think you said you're not, like you said, you're not, you you can't change how somebody's going to respond to what you're saying. You can just try to be as clear as you can in what you're saying. And if they hear something you're not saying, that's on them. Yeah. Well, when I sat in that class and heard Bruce Walkie talk about the book of Ruth, I have to tell you, I sobbed all the way home. I thought, what have I been doing with my life, thinking that somebody's supposed to take care of me or mm-hmm. that that I'm supposed to do? Well, my mom said it. You will follow your husband. And, you know, I was just glad for the heads up because <laughs> I, you know, 
it matters to me where he's going, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but it was, but it was, it was over for me. The whole mm -hmm. debate about women was over at mm -hmm. that point. Cause I just thought I have responsibility. This is not a free ride for me. And, you know, what does it mean to be an Azer in Ukraine today? Mm -hmm. Who's going to take care of you, right? No, they're making bombs. <laughs> the Azers over there. You know, it's it. we need to stress test our theology mm, by a like global that. perspective. Yeah. You know, your Palestinian friends are important to our understanding of Scripture. Because it's a global message, and we are the ends of the earth. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, this is the last frontier for the gospel. We act like we invented it, but we didn't. We are latecomers and mm -hmm. foreigners to the world of the Bible. So we, we need all the help we can get. And your Palestinian friends can in, inform you. And I think, again, patriarchy matters because it's the back the cultural the fallen cultural backdrop yeah. of the bible's message and it just ignites a fire when you start to see that because it's you know like for me i saw these men in these stories they're violating patriarchy mm -hmm. you don't give your life for the youngest son and you know and god is always choosing the wrong one <laughs> mm -hmm. he chooses son number two over and over and over again in genesis and right. then and then he chooses number four because he does choose judah mm -hmm. but his you know jacob chooses 11. but god god doesn't play by by primogeniture's rule he does not right. he violates it himself yeah. and it happens again and again and again and then sometimes he chooses a woman yeah well, now this is so this, this and viewers have don't know this, but this whole discussion that we set up came from uh, a Facebook interaction and a Facebook post where you shared something. And I, I won't leave. I'll, if you want to share it, you can. But you shared something by a Christian leader that was basically arguing. And it's a Christian leader that's in my neighborhood, by the way, lives uh, not too far from here. And you shared a quote. We actually went to seminary together and it was. Um, the the Christian this pastor was saying patriarchy is not wrong it's sinful patriarchy is the problem Christian patriarchy is what God wants and so and he comes from a tradition that is very much of the mindset that God instilled patriarchy it's not a result of the fall it's just been distorted but patriarchy itself is the good thing you seem to take the view that no patriarchy is the uh, social reality that God stepped into to start undermining and turning people away from it. And so that it is wholly a result of the fall. It's, it's Genesis three, not Genesis one and two. That seems to be where you're coming from. And, and I just, I saw that post and was reached out and said, Hey, look, do you want to talk about this on an episode? I think it'd be pretty interesting. <laughs> So how do you respond to th that idea that is popular among, I, I'm not complimentarian. I, I don't know if I say I'm egalitarian because I think I see some issues with everybody that 
I'm still parsing out what I think is the best label, but I am not complimentary. I do believe uh, women, every spiritual gift that God gives to men in the church, God also can and has called women to. Um, so how do you respond to our brothers and sisters who are on that side and who say, oh, patriarchy's good. You just have to do it right. It needs to be loving and benevolent. Well, it's at a, you know, one of the things I argue in Maelstrom is that the definition of manhood that gets argued for mm -hmm. is out of reach for a lot of men. It, it's not a birthright. You have to earn it. And, um, and Jesus didn't follow those rules, and Paul didn't follow those rules. They never married, they never produced sons. They took support, they took, they received support from women, mm -hmm. financial support. It's all backwards in their stories. They didn't follow those rules. And these are really arbitrary categories that, that are set up to, to maintain the status quo. And, you know, I've had male friends who were paralyzed. How are they going to protect? Hmm. How are they going to, you know, and, and men who are physically incapable of earning a living or, you know, the wife is the one who's the breadwinner and that's what's blessing their family and blessing him. And I believe that true manhood is a birthright, that you are born to reflect your creator. That is your birthright. You are the Imago Dei. And you can violate that, you can ignore it, but you can't get away from it. That's what you're called to be and do. And it doesn't, you don't have power over other people. The creation narrative does not give power over any other person. And it doesn't give it to men and it doesn't give it to women. The power is God's to rule creation. And we're his agents. We reflect his heart. You know, we're not in this to dominate anybody. And I'll tell you what, and you can clip this out if you want to. <laughs> but it really, for a lot of women, and I include myself in this, was horrifying to see complementarian leaders support Donald Trump after the Access Hollywood tape release. And they, their mantra is to protect women. And some egalitarians have failed miserably at that too. Yeah. Which is why I think this whole discussion is very inadequate for mm. what God calls us to be and do. Mm. But it's, you know, that was horrifying to me. Yeah. And, you know, don't talk to me about protecting women. Yeah. That's not protecting women. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I gained, uh, Carmen and I talked about this on the first episode. I 
uh, I had always been kind of ambivalent towards um, Beth Moore. I just never really in interacted much with her or engaged with her teachings very much. I would kind of review some of her material when I was on staff at church for small groups and things. But it just it, I never really paid a lot of attention to her, what, for good or for ill. I just d didn't. And when she started getting the major flack for being one of those after that incident, stepping up and saying, this is unacceptable, that's when I started, my respect started ratcheting up and I started paying attention to her more and listening to more of what she said and have been really pleasantly surprised because I think you're, it, it is, it is baffling to me how people exactly what you said cannot, I don't, I don't, this is not about how somebody votes. I don't care how somebody votes. Everybody that follows me on Facebook knows my politics are the, you know, not Republican or Democrat, but the, the, rushing to defend or excuse something that is indefensible and inexcusable because of tribal political allegiance. It showed to me an idolatry among Christians and it's still there. It's still, I think it's a deep idolatry among Christians. Well, um, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It comes up all, all the time with women who are believers and women who are not. And, you know, it's, it's, politics are flawed. Mm -hmm. Our government leaders are all flawed. Mm -hmm. But I think when something comes out of that nature, when at the same time, we have church two going on, mm -hmm. and all of these scandals emerging, you know, we've got major problems. And, you know, you can, you can talk patriarchy all you want, but there is a real consequence for wanting that. I mean, it's, it's, Jesus doesn't call us to any social system. He doesn't call us to any social governmental way. You know, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Yeah. And it, it, it's a different kingdom. It's Ruth and Boaz and Naomi thinking about the needs of others and sac making huge sacrifices because of others and what others need. And it's just, it's, it's Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus isn't represented by Republicans or Democrats right, or right. independents for that matter. Nope. It's, you know, it's, it's not of this world. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. And all of us have to struggle to enter into that kingdom because mm -hmm. all of us are rooted in a fallen world. Yeah. So, you know, we've all got more to learn. You know, and we have to live that kingdom out in this world. And because of our finite grasp of everything, we are going to inherently have disagreements among Christians about how to best live out that kingdom in this fallen world. And so Christians, I, do, I think Christians are always going to come from have political disagreements. I think we're always going to have disagreements on policy and on social issues and on cultural issues. Yeah. But where we can find commonality is we can say, our desire, we want the same end and we want, and our authority and our, our, what is empowering us is the same source. 
And so in the meantime, how do we navigate our disagreements that become genuine disagreements without the rancor and the infestation of the idolatry that politics has become for America in general? And not just yeah. America, I mean, all over the world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I, I appreciate that you are tackling this issue head on. I, I, I love on your social media, you're not afraid to engage and to be specific and pointed, not in a, at least that I've seen a combative way and an acerbic way, but in a way that's like, okay, let's get this out and talk about it. I'm going to say what I think. And, and I think this is something that we as a church need to talk about together. Uh, that's exactly what these discussions and these episodes are for as well, yeah. is to do just that. Well, kudos so, to you for doing that. You know, we just, we've got a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn. And, you know, and I want to learn. It's just, it's unnerving, <laughs> you know, when you've been thinking a certain way your whole life. And then all of a sudden you, you find out, oh my goodness, what have I been thinking? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I, I, I think that challenging our, whole life thinking is always a good thing. You know, the, the always reforming mindset of what should Mm. be reformation. And it's something that people who pride themselves on being reformation Christians don't always do. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, I've reformed and that's it. And now anything that challenges that I've got to push back and contend for the faith and guard against the the wolves that are trying to get into among the sheep. And, and so whether it's patriarchy, whether it's, um, you know, any cultural hot button issue, that's kind of, you're going to get that people riled up because they can't disentangle the issues from uh, the core of the gospel and, and see that degree of charity that we need to be able to give one another uh, but part of it's biblical. I mean, we, before we go, we're coming up on around, around two hours. So I want to be mindful of your time. And um, I, one of the, the key passages that comes up in any discussion of male-female uh, relationships is the passage in First Timothy 2 about women and how Paul wants them to dress modestly, not elaborate, and then also about how they are to learn in silence. And he does not permit a woman to... And then there's question about what he's actually saying in that verse. The reason I bring this up to you, I'd like to hear how you approach that passage in general, because when I do one of the things Disciple Dojo does on our channel, we review study Bibles and I review the different study Bibles on the market. And I look at key passages where you are going to find differences depending on what study Bible you're using. And so first Timothy two is one that I almost always include. Because that will be a lightning rod passage, and it'll also give you a good idea of where that study Bible uh, editorial board is coming from. So how do you deal with the passage in First Timothy 2 about women? One, well, the modesty thing we can talk about if you want to, but I'm more interested in how you approach it. Because you are a woman, you are teaching, you are not learning in silence at home you are actually speaking and writing and, and heading, you know, I, I think you're adjunct seminary professor and you do all of these things. So Carolyn, why are you not following the Bible? Would be the question you're going to get. <laughs> you know, well, I'll say, this is where I've landed. Mm-hmm. 
in, in a couple of things. First, for me, the definitive passage is Genesis 1. And that's the vision that God has for creation. And that's what we lost in, in, at the fall. That's what Jesus came to restore. When I look at Paul, it seems a it seems a little strange to me that when we come to deciding what women can or can't do, that we leap over the whole rest of the Bible and land in First Timothy. That this is the governing text for what women can or can't do. When Paul himself is already you know, working with women, women are on his team, they are indispensable to his ministry. Um, and, you know, it's so I'm sticking with Genesis one, that calls me to responsibility, to call that calls me to use my opportunities and privileges before the Lord to serve him. And what I think Paul is doing is taking Jesus into the first century. And when you read Acts and Paul's letters, you see that they're figuring it out. You know, how does Gentiles, you know, mm-hmm. how, do, how do we do this? Do they become Jews? They, ha- they were struggling to figure that all out. And um, our job is to take Jesus into the 21st century. And we have new questions that they weren't asking then. And we have to struggle like they struggled, you know, because we are. And this is a culture where all kinds of things have come you know, women in the workplace, women as the breadwinner, women who are single, you know, if you were single, well, they just, you would, they would marry you off. Even Ruth's father married her off to a famine refugee. You know, that wasn't exactly a marriage that was going to bless their family and increase their status that he's offloading her to do that. But, you know, in under patriarchy, you get married, they'll marry you off to somebody. And, you know, maybe that somebody's got three other wives, but, you know, the more wives, the more offspring you can have. And I just think, you know, our challenge is to take the gospel into the the 21st century, you know, where we're asking questions about marriage and marital rights and abortion and, you know, women in leadership positions and as heads of corporations and you know that women are professors in universities and you know it's a different world i mean for me the first time i ever spoke to a group where there was where men were president were present was at a women's conference when i looked up at this 
window up high in the wall and there was a man in the sound booth and I thought now what am I supposed to do <laughs> you know yeah. so I figured it's his responsibility I'm not going to take it for him but you know that was when I was sort of leaning in that direction that it's okay to speak to groups of women but men started coming so what do you do mm -hmm. you know or so you were, were you, you grew up or were raised in what would be complementarian? Oh, very, position. very okay. much so. Yeah. Totally different rules. And uh, it's, it, yeah, yeah, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> so I'm sure. Well, yeah. we, yeah, I, it's interesting to me. I, I was raised and still am Methodist, um, not United Methodist, we are in the process of ununiting at the moment, but I have always been Wesleyan evangelical. And so women in, and my, my dad's pastor, my mom was, uh, is a strong woman. And I, I always saw marriage modeled as teamwork as to, you know, they were something dad was good at these things. Mom was good at these things. So if it was a decision that needed to be made and it was in his area, that's where we went. If it was in her area, that's where we went because who else is going to, you know? So yeah. when I talk with complimentarian friends, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I, I don't have the, I didn't, I don't have that background or that upbringing. Um, yeah. but I, but that doesn't mean that when I hear egalitarian friends and some of the things they say, I'm like, wait a minute, time out. Like there's, you're not being fair to the biblical text either because you're kind of just saying, well, they don't know what they're talking about. We have all the answers now. And so I, you know, I find myself going, what, what you said, Paul taking Jesus in the first century, I think that's right. Paul taking the gospel, the, the New Testament letters are, how do you live out the gospel in the Greco-Roman first century? Well, or how would you talk to the women in Afghanistan under the Taliban? Wouldn't mm -hmm. you tell them to cover up? You know, I mean, I wouldn't want anybody to get treated like they do get treated when they i mean it, yeah for their safety for logistic reasons right and, their cultural and you would tell reasons. them you would tell them to listen you need to listen so you'll learn right and right. you know i i think a lot of it is a call to learning and that was not they were not educating their daughters they're not mm. doing that in, in afghanistan you know yeah. this is this is what patriarchy does it says boys matter girls don't unless you know they're going to go to another family and produce sons for somebody else they're not yeah. going to help us so it's you know yeah i i think that that we have we have new issues to address and we need to be fearless in addressing them and in challenging the gospel to help us in in how we navigate in the 21st century things are different different yeah. now well in in second or first timothy 2 is a perfect example in the verse right before the verse about teaching and, and how we look at it as Americans rather than ancient near uh, ancient Greco-Roman audience, because I just had this discussion the other day in an online group with Christian singles where the issue was about dressing modestly. And they said, you know, the Bible says for women should dress modestly. And it is all I've found 100% of the time, not 99, 100% of the time, American evangelical Christians hear and read the command to dress modestly as Paul saying, don't dress sexually provocatively. 
when in reality, what Paul was specifically saying, if you finish the verse, is don't dress economically provocatively. In other words, don't dress with gold, pearls, elaborate hairstyles, rich clothing. He was talking about it because it wasn't a concern. Women weren't going around show wearing halter tops and bikinis. And yeah, they're they were showing their status and so i find it incredibly ironic where you'll have a church where the pastor's wearing nine hundred dollar sneakers or a ten thousand dollar suit and the women in the church have hats that cost more than my monthly income and dresses to the nine and they'll condemn somebody who comes to church in pants rather than a skirt or you know wears yoga pants when they go jogging as being immodest and i just think whether that is immodest or not that has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in that passage, which is what you are clearly violating with your wildly extravagant wardrobe yeah. in a church setting. And so I think to me, that's a perfect example of how we look at ancient Near East texts through a modern lens. And we just think, oh, yeah, is Paul's talking about modesty in the sexual sense. And don't get me wrong, viewer. I'm not saying Paul didn't care about that. And I think Paul would have words. And I think Jesus would too. If somebody did come to church in, you know, a bikini or the slick dress or what, just, I just don't think that's the issue in that passage that's being addressed. And I think the one that is being addressed is the very issue that many Christians are ignoring uh, because they just don't think it talks about that. Economic disparities. Yeah. Well, there are all kinds of walls that, and I, you know, I love Paul, and I have to say there have been times when I haven't <laughs> loved him. But, you know, when I see the transformation in that man and how, how unbelievable it is, that not only, you know, not only does he say there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, he lives it. Mm-hmm. You know, he cross, he's, he actually becomes a bridge that, that, you know, connects those in his own story, yeah. in his own story. When you think about, you know, when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, I, I really think that he was always dogged by memories that he couldn't get out of his head of the screams of the, you know, the things that he, yeah. How, I mean, we don't forget the wrong things we do. We don't forget, even though, you know, Jesus has forgiven us. We don't forget that, that we're capable of doing really hurtful things. And, you know, I love that about him. And then when you see, how he changes and how he's it i mean it's beyond whatever whatever you would imagine happening to him at conversion you'd think okay now he's going to be you know a, a, one of those that promotes circumcision or mm-hmm. you know but he's yeah and i think we need we need to change more than we have yeah yeah, he definitely wow. crosses the boundaries and, it's and amazing. <laughs> upsets the apple carts uh, in a lot of ways. I, I do think Paul is uh, probably the most misread author. Maybe maybe John of Revelation might have him edged out in terms of most misinterpreted work. But I, I think Paul is certainly up there 
in terms of being the most misunderstood by so many people across the spectrum because he's such a unique and an interesting figure and because he was writing to such diverse uh, congregations, audiences, settings. Getting beaten. (laughs) Yeah, usually from jail. They didn't call him woke. They just threw stones at him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, it's... um, so before we go, I, had, I threw this out there and viewers, uh, followers on social media, I said, do you have any questions? We're going to have Carolyn Custis James on. And what? And one of them is a good question because you do deal with issues of male, female and patriarchy. And they wanted to know what Bible translation uh, that you prefer and you think is the most gender accurate uh, for somebody who does care about these issues and may have misunderstood some passages because of translation issues. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what would you recommend? It's a really difficult subject because translating those ancient languages into English and for a modern audience that, you know, some of the words don't make any sense to us. I know when I talked to one of the translators, they said, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure in texts that say brothers or brethren or, you know, it, it talks about men as opposed to mankind. It's it's humanity that's intended that readers can't make that adjustment and they feel left out. And I, as a woman, I would read scripture and I would think, is this talking to me? Or, or am I just overhearing what's being said to my brothers? And so... I get that. That's a big problem. But um, I, I so they've they've worked on these translations to make them clearer to a modern audience. So uh, you know, I use the um, TNIV. That's what I use the most. Um, but I'm also part of this group. I'm on their advisory board. Mm-hmm. This is a new movement. I don't know if you've heard of this, mm-hmm. but it's the Institute for Bible Reading. And this is the New Living Translation, which I was thrilled when came, when it came out at first. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it was hard to read the Bible to my daughter when it, you know, it, right. it wasn't as clear as this is. So, you know, and I recommend that for the average reader, you're, it's going to be clearer in their, their lovely introductions before each book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell me about that Immerse uh, project. Is it grouped by books of the Bible or by theme? Or that one's Messiah. They, no, they've done the whole, their beginnings, uh-huh. <laughs> their kingdoms and chronicles. Right. So it's, the, it's a whole collection this is this is messiah is the new testament okay and is it all the the whole new testament okay gotcha and the old testament is in five volumes okay that's what i was wondering yeah yeah because they just and churches are using this for book clubs Mm -hmm. you know where they say okay let's do this together and they'll read it they'll read a book of the bible or they'll read it and then they'll come together and they'll talk about it. And it's just reigniting yeah. the reading of scripture. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is the ESV, which has really taken over, is 
driven by the agenda to preserve the use of the word male. Mm -hmm. So when it says that God created man, (laughs) then they want to leave it to say man. They don't want to say he created humanity or he created mankind. And um, it's, it's kind of funny because there were a couple of places where I caught them. And one was, I used to say my favorite verse, and I can't think of the psalm reference offhand, but it's a verse in the psalms that says, all men are liars. And I used to use that to torment a young pastor in our church who used to say, women can't do this and women can't do that. And I'd say, (laughs) do do you want to hear my favorite verse? (laughs) And then I would quote that one. He goes, oh, no, no, no. But it's funny because I thought, I'm going to see if the ESV backs me up and says, all men are liars. And they don't. They say, all mankind. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, there's another place in Galatians where they give away the farm because the text says in Christ you are all sons Mm -hmm. he's saying that to a mixed audience in a patriarchal culture how do you think women heard that in the first century you are all sons you are all sons in God's family and they keep that translation and the other translations say you're all sons and daughters that's not what paul is saying and it is a revolutionary statement in the patriarchal world you are all sons and in that instance uh a a literal translate or not literal but you know a a word-for-word translation is needed to bring out the Subversive. But it has to be ex- it has to be explained to a modern audience, and that's why I keep saying we right. need to understand patriarchy, and we need to explain it when we use these stories or these yeah. letters, because it's it's radical. It is so radical, and they're not thinking it's radical. They're thinking it's you know preserving a male feel for you know, their theology, but the Bible doesn't do that. Right. right. And it's, it's earth shaking. So yeah. Yeah. When it comes to, yeah. Bible translation is a fascinating topic. Mark Ward and I talked about this when he was on and, and it's, um, it's very fascinating. I try to tell people every translation has strengths, every translation has weaknesses and that there's no perfect translation. Um, I, you, I, you mentioned NLT, I think is good. The TNIV, for those who don't know, it's no longer in print, but the NIV 2011 is for the most part, uh, uh the, the TNIV. Yeah. They, they yeah. may have changed and tweaked a few things. Um, and then the ESV, there are numerous editions. Some ESV readers don't even know that there are four, I believe four different editions of the ESV. So the ESV you're reading from 2001 is going to be different than the ESV that you see on Bible Gateway or version or something right now. Um, and, and every translation is done by flawed people. So yeah. as long as we're able to be charitable, but be also be understanding that, okay, no translation is going to be perfect. And, and the ESV is an overtly, this is not a, um, Carolyn, you're not slamming them by saying they are guided by this agenda. They say it in the preface 
and the Committee on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which kind of runs the ESV translation, or at least it was birthed from, uh, they they are they don't hide the fact it was done to be an alternative to the TNIV back during that little three-way Bible battle in the early 2000s between Holman Christian Standard, TNIV, and ESV, and they kind of each lined up their different uh, Christian celebrity spokespeople. And <laughs> and so there was this little, I, I laugh because it's of all the th- a tempest in a teapot, like nobody except Bible nerds even knows about this. But I was in seminary when it was all unfolding and I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are good. that's a good recommendation. I think uh, NLT is a good one to recommend. I think NIV. Oh, yeah. um, it's beautifully done. It's beautifully done. And, you know, there's always interpretation. I'm using that new version of the TNIV. I don't mm-hmm. even have the old one, I don't think. But yeah. anyway. there's, there's an interesting for viewers that want to kind of um, go down the rabbit hole. Uh, none other than D.A. Carson, who's fairly complementarian and reformed, wrote a book on the whole Bible translation gender issue called The Inclusive Language Debate, A Plea for Realism, I think is the subtitle. And it is a very, very good book. It's very balanced, and he does do a good job of, of sharing these types of passages like that Carolyn mentioned and others, where is this talking about? gender language or is this talking about humanity language and just using male gender as a default like when jesus says if any man would come after me let him take up his cross and follow me does that mean that women can't take up their cross so those are i I will put a link in the video description if if people want to go deeper i do recommend checking out that book uh if you really want to get into the weeds on it there's another one mark strauss and i think Gordon Fee wrote up are the ones how to choose a translation for all yes, it's worth. Yes. That's a really good book. Yes. That's literally, yeah, that's right behind me up here. It is. <laughs> well, I, Carol, we are, we're about two hours now. So before we go, how, if anybody wants to contact you or reach you, I'm going to put your information in the video description along with Thank the timestamps for people. But how would you tell uh, viewers the best way to get in touch with you? Well, I'm, I have a website that is carolyncustisjames.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter as Carolyn Azer. Okay. So they right. should be able to find me there. Right. But there's a way to contact me on, on my website. Yes. So. Okay. Perfect. Well, folks, uh, thank you for watching this and for tuning in. I think this is a, this, I'm sure viewers, there are some who are pulling their hair out because we didn't go deep enough on a specific issue or, and others who think, Whoa, I've never heard that much about this issue and all of the reactions. So whatever your comments are, feel free to leave them in the comment section below and I'll uh, be happy to interact. Um, but I want to make sure that viewers know the purpose of these dojo discussions. One, I want you to know who Carolyn is. Uh, get, make, a lot of times people are just names on pages or book covers, and we don't actually get to interact or, or understand who they are as people. And so being able to have Carolyn on and you to get to see who she is as an author and a little bit about her story, um, that's, I, I want you to know who she is. And, and I wholeheartedly recommend especially the gospel of ruth because that's the one that was uh, such a help to me in teaching ruth to a popular audience 
and making the transition from commentary to Bible study, that was a wonderful resource. And so I wholeheartedly recommend you go check that out. Uh, I'm looking forward to reflecting and more and interacting with her uh, findings in Maelstrom. And so follow her on social media, check out her website and go get a copy of those books and see what you think, because <laughs> this is not to tell you what to think. In a dojo, you don't come into a dojo and get told what to do. You come into a dojo to spar. You come into a dojo to train, to get pushed, to get pulled. Maybe you get thrown. Maybe you get swept. Uh, this is, as martial artists, that's what we go to dojos for. But in the process of going to a dojo, you learn and you grow and you get stronger. So that's what here at Disciple Dojo, this is a theological, biblical training center. So if you are watching this and you want to push back against something Carolyn said, maybe you think, no, I think you're wrong. You are free to share that in the comment section. As long as like any dojo, it's done with respect and with the desire to better the other person, it's always welcome. So Carolyn, thank you so much for spending this afternoon. And I, I'm just tickled that you were here. So. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's so nice. Once again, I want to thank Carolyn for joining us here at Disciple Dojo. I hope you found this conversation interesting. I know I did. Some of the topics we discussed probably raised more questions than answers for some of you. And so I'm going to put links in the video description below for where you can go deeper as you explore and parse out and figure out where you land on all of these issues that we've talked about. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the other interviews we've done here at Disciple Dojo in our Dojo Discussions playlist. We've talked to some pretty interesting people here and hopefully that will only continue in the future. Thanks for watching and we will see see you back here for another dojo discussion in the near future.